You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Like many of the Spanish conquistadors who made their way to the Americas, Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca joined an expedition to explore Florida in search of glory and, ideally, an encomienda of his own. Florida is what the Spanish called all of the land around the Gulf of Mexico, including the actual Floridian Peninsula. Unlike most Spanish conquistadors, Cabeza de Vaca ended up lost in the area we now call Texas for the better part of a decade, naked, barefoot, unarmed, horseless, and at the mercy of the natives he encountered most of whom he couldn't communicate with beyond gesturing and hoping to be understood. Cabeza de Vaca's experience of the Americas was brutal at times, as he teetered on starvation, was beaten by enslavers, and suffered indignities for much of his eight-plus years lost in Texas and northern Mexico. Still, his recollection of his journeys are nuanced, if inevitably colored by his background and biases. And by the end of his life, he became a champion of indigenous rights, demanding reform so loudly that the other Spaniards of South America had him arrested and sent back to Spain on trumped-up charges. Though the writing and travels of Cabeza de Vaca are very much a part of the history of conquistadors, they also stand out. I'm Averill Earls. And I'm Marissa Rhodes. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. Can you believe we've been making this show for over four years? It seems so long. <laughs> it's super long. It's older um, than some of your children. Yeah, for real. Um, we couldn't have done it without our listeners and especially our Patreon supporters who literally keep the recording lights on. Lauren and Edward, Denise, Maddie, Maggie, Danielle, Lisa, Agnes, Iris, Maria, Colin, Susan, and Peggy, and our newest auger, Jessica. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of the show, it's easy. Check us out at patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. For those of you intimately familiar with the History Buffs back catalog, you'll recognize this topic from Jeeves, uh, like five years ago or something like that. This is an episode that I like to assign in my world history class, and I've been thinking for a while that it needs a solid update and better recording equipment, which we now have. The original episode's bibliography was also pretty limited, just an English translation of Cabeza de Vaca's Naufragios, or Shipwrecks, plus a couple of books about Spanish conquistadors in Mexico and South America. 
I wanted a revision of the episode to dig a little deeper into the historiography surrounding Cabeza de Vaca and his place in the historical ethnographies and travel conquest writings of Spanish explorers. Uh, but there's also a great semi-new 2018 book about Esteban, the enslaved Moroccan man with whom Cabeza de Vaca started and ended his shipwreck story. I also read a couple of different translations of Naufragios and found the Rolena Adorno and Patrick Pouts's 2003 edition to be super useful um, for understanding the geography of Cabeza de Vaca's travels. So that's sort of the stuff that went into this episode, this update. Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca was born around 1490 and was a member of the Spanish minor nobility. According to local legend, his family name, Head of Cow, was bestowed by a Spanish king in the Middle Ages. One of Alvar's ancestors helped the king win a battle by marking a special mountain pass with a cow's skull, thus Cabeza de Vaca. He was probably from Yeras de la Frontera, Andalusia, Spain. In 1511, as a young man, he joined the Spanish military, serving with distinction for many years. Though he was only a minor noble, his military service must have allowed him to stand out in the king's mind, because in 1527, when he joined Panfio de Narvaez's mission to the New World, the king appointed Cabeza de Vaca as the expedition's treasurer and chief officer of the Emperor Charles. Narvaez was granted authority by King Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire, Charles I of Spain, to explore and conquer La Florida, aka the territory from the Rio de Palmas, um, which is uh, the, the Rio Soto La Marina in modern Tamaulipas in Mexico, uh, all the way to the Floridian Peninsula. And remember, the Spanish at this time basically called all of the land north of Mexico, especially along the Gulf Coast, Florida, which means the land of the flowers. It was still unclear to the Europeans at that point how large the North American continent was, but presumably Narvaez was only granted the coastal region, which is still like 3,000 miles of coastland, pretty expensive, it's therefore ridiculous, but whatever. Other leaders were probably better suited for the conquest of the unknown lands of La Florida, but evidently Hernan Cortez was on Charles's list because he went a-conquering without royal authority along the Pacific coast north of Mexico City and to the south as far as Honduras and the Yucatan. Uh, Narvaez had the king's ear, and he also hated Cortez. So Narvaez got the expedition. For Europeans, the quote-unquote discovery of the quote-unquote new world in 1482 was a game-changer. As M. Carmen Gomez Galistillo has argued, early modern European religious leaders believed that the Americas had been hidden until the right time for Europeans to discover it. It represented promise, wealth, and the superiority of Europeans to all other nations on Earth. For the English, the Americas could relieve their crowded, filthy, crime-ridden cities. Land and opportunity were in high demand and low supply as the European population had recovered rapidly from the Black Death. For the Spanish, to whom went credit for the 15th century discovery of the New World, was an endless supply of potential riches and souls in need of saving. Genoese explorer Christopher Columbus had no interest in governing, which allowed the Spanish crown to take control and rule Spanish-American colonies directly. Though every conquistador was a little different in his personal motivations for crossing the Atlantic and stumbling or slashing his way through the American continents, Generally, the Spanish crown sought land for Spain and converts for the Catholic Church. 
Ferdinand and Isabella, also known as the Catholic Monarchs, united Spain and expelled the last of the Muslims and Jews from the peninsula in 1492. While Spanish encounters with indigenous Americans were quite different from the Reconquista's ending of a 700-year-long Muslim occupation of Spain, the ideological parallels are hard to ignore. The title of those charged with conquering the Americas was Adelantado, a title drawn directly from the Reconquista, one given to Spanish nobles for their service to the Catholic crown in opposition to the Muslim occupiers. And in their various writings, Spanish conquistadors like Hernán Cortés, Ponce de León, and Bernal Díaz del Castillo all compared the indigenous American peoples, land, and culture to those of the Muslims who'd once lived in Spain. As Gómez Galisteo suggests, the Spanish invasion and subjugation of the Americas was an ideological extension of the Reconquista. After Columbus's third voyage to the New World, the Spanish-born Pope issued an official decree giving Spain jurisdiction over everything discovered 300 miles west of the Cape Verde Islands, while new lands discovered east of that line should belong to Portugal, so basically splitting the world in half and giving half to Spain and half to Portugal. On June 7, 1494, Spain and Portugal met at Tordesillas, Spain, and signed a treaty that moved the line to 370 leagues west of Cape Verde. Though even the new line only ceded a small protrusion of South America's easternmost coast to the Portuguese, the Spanish never contested Portuguese expansion west into the interior of the continent. The treaty and all of its amendments and revisions in the decades hence completely ignored the autonomy of the indigenous people of North America, South America, and Africa, and effectively cut the other European imperial hopefuls out of the Catholic deal as well. This was only powerful, of course, until the Reformation destabilized the Pope's authority in European international affairs, after which Protestant nations like England and the Netherlands basically ignored the supposed Spanish and Portuguese claims to the land. Early Spanish conquests under Ferdinand and Isabella focused on the Caribbean islands, granting encomiendas to conquistadors in Cuba, Jamaica, Barbados, and Hispaniola. Um, for those who haven't listened to my episode on Recogimiento recently, the encomienda system was one in which the Spanish king granted an individual the right to demand tribute and forced labor from the Indian inhabitants of the area. Yuck. <laughs> <laughs> When Queen Isabella died in 1504, the alliance between the Spanish kingdoms of Castilla and Aragon floundered for a decade until Ferdinand finally died himself without any new heirs by his second wife. And Ferdinand and Isabella's grandson, Charles, came to the throne, bringing with him the newly conquered territories of the Holy Roman Empire. Charles invested heavily in expanding the Spanish Empire and the Americas, orchestrating wave after wave of violent conquest. He sent the conquistadors responsible for the destruction of both the Aztec and Incan empires and funded Magellan's circumnavigation of the globe. Charles was convinced that he was destined to be the leader of Christendom. Charles's expansionism was undoubtedly fueled by the Reconquista successes of his grandparents, the ongoing Muslim threat across the Mediterranean, and the emergent Protestant Reformation, a new challenge to Catholic supremacy on continental Europe. Plus, it quickly became evident that those goods that the Europeans so coveted, sugar, 
indigo, then coffee, later tobacco, could grow in these strange new lands. The religious motivations persisted, and as we'll see, Cabeza de Vaca represents the spiritual quest of the conquistador as much, if not more than, any of the priests who traveled with the Spanish. But the economic and political motivations for rapid, violent conquest were all too evident in Charles's agenda. The establishment of plantations on the Caribbean islands brought valuable natural resources to the metropole, thereby increasing the wealth of a growing empire. The rumors of gold and silver in the interior of Central America, the Andes, and southwestern North America drew representatives of the crown like flies to a corpse. Before the Spanish invaded, Central America had around 16 million people from several dozen different language groups and tribal organizations. Aztec is an umbrella term used to describe the numerous ethnic groups of America, of Central America, um, which were loosely united under the military dominance of the Mexica by the early 16th century. In 1400 CE, there were nine major tribal organizations in the Valley of Mexico, the most important political and economic region of Central America, with distinct customs, religious practices, and dialects of Nahuatl. In the 15th and early 16th centuries, the Mexica military conquered most of the territory outside the Valley of Mexico, but within the valley, they didn't attempt much in the way of conquest. Instead, they established alliances and tribute shares with the other residents of the valley, so their hold over Central America was tenuous at best. Tribal organization was central to life in the Americas. Between Christianity, enslavement, and population decline, Spanish conquest was successful in subordinating the Native Americans because it disrupted or destroyed tribal organizations. Hernán Cortés, the leader of the first major wave of Spanish conquistadors on mainland Central America, had little knowledge of local politics when he first arrived. Using Malintzen, an indigenous woman enslaved by Cortés as a translator, Cortés was able to quickly exploit the tense political situation. He found formerly powerful tribes who were, by 1519, subordinated to the Mexica, and they assisted him in toppling the Mexica in Tenochtitlan. The major Spanish conquests, Hernán Cortés over the Aztecs and Francisco Pizarro over the Inca, are the typical narratives of Spanish Central South American encounters that we get. Contemporaries describe Pizarro's rape of the virginal lands, and after their violent campaign across Peru, Pizarro's brother took the many children that were the product of Pizarro's literal rape of indigenous women back to Europe. The way that the Spanish thought about the Native Americans and the Americas seems clear from those narratives, but Cabeza de Vaca's story is not one of violent machismo triumph. Some Europeans regretted the dismal treatment of the indigenous peoples. Some regarded the voyages to the New World as awe-inspiring, terrifying, and not to be taken lightly. Cabeza de Vaca is just one of the dissenting voices of the larger narrative of European exploitation and murder of the indigenous population. Bartolomé de las Casas, a priest, argued that the Europeans were decimating the local population through their physical and sexual enslavement of the natives, and that this was not a very Christian thing to do. Similarly, in Cabeza de Vaca's writings, though he louds the beauty and the danger of the quote-unquote New World, he's also forthright and nuanced in his descriptions of the indigenous peoples he encountered. The language he used in his narrative, which he wrote in the early 1540s, is that of a man hesitant and awed by this new world and its people. 
It's different from the more propagandic or machismo-esque language that surrounded Cortez's taking of Central America, um, the Pizarro incursion into Inca lands, or even Columbus's letters to the Catholic monarchs describing the first European investigations of the Caribbean islands. The Narvaez expedition was an unmitigated disaster. Over 600 Spanish men and a dozen of their wives set sail from San Luzar de Barrameda, Andalusia, under the command of Panfilo Narvaez in 1527. In the end, only four survived and made it to the capital of New Spain at Tenochtitlan. Cabeza de Vaca, Alonso del Castillo Maldonado of Salamanca, Andres Dorantes of Bejar, and Esteban, an enslaved man from Morocco. They were stranded or lost in La Florida for eight years, enslaved, alone, and very far from home. But they lived to tell the tale. Based on Cabeza de Vaca's narrative and Francesco Oviedo's Historia, Narvaez arrived in the Americas in September 1527, having left Andalusia in July. They landed first at Santo Domingo, which is the present-day Dominican Republic, to refuel. Not literally refuel, obviously, they're on wind-powered ships, but, like, get stuff, <laughs> supplies. <laughs> fuel up on some wind. <laughs> and they stayed there nearly a month before proceeding to Cuba. Before they left, over 140 men deserted the expedition in Santiago, uh, in Santo Domingo. And since we have hindsight, um, obviously, those 140 men obviously got out while the getting was good. Good for them. Four ships waited at a port named, named Cape, Cape Santa Cruz, while Cabeza de Vaca led two of the other ships to Trinidad, Cuba. And while in Cuba, Cabeza de Vaca's two ships were hit by a massive hurricane. The majority of his crew and soldiers were fresh young recruits from Spain and had never experienced a hurricane before, um, Cabeza de Vaca himself included. They were utterly terrified. Of this, Cabeza de Vaca wrote, quote, Then the rain and storm increased in violence at the village, as well as on the sea, and all the houses and churches fell down, and we had to go about seven or eight men locking arms at a time to prevent the wind from carrying us off. And under the trees, it was not less dangerous than among the houses, for as they were also were blown down, we were in danger of being killed beneath them. On Monday morning, we went down to the harbor, but did not find the vessels. We saw the buoys in the water, and from this we knew that the ships were lost. So we followed the shore, looking for wreckage, and not finding any, turned into the forest. Walking through, we saw a fourth of a league from the water, the little boat of one of the vessels on top of the trees, and ten leagues further down on the coast were two men of my crew. Their bodies were so disfigured by striking against the rocks as to be unrecognizable. They were also found a cape and a tattered quilt, but nothing else. Sixty people and twenty horses perished on the ships. Those who went on land the day we arrived, some thirty men, were all who survived of the crews of both vessels. Jesus. Mm-hmm. On November 5, Narvaez arrived. He collected the survivors, and they sailed down the Cuban coast to Xagua, where the crew convinced Narvaez to winter. They feared another storm like the one who'd killed their friends. Narvaez traveled throughout Cuba seeking supplies and new ships. They finally set sail for La Florida in February 1528 with four ships, a brigantine vessel, 400 men, and 80 horses. Narvaez hired a pilot named Miruelo, who claimed to know the way to Florida, uh, to lead them. Miruelo did not know the way. 
Mom, Meruelo. <laughs> WTF, what are you doing? WTF, Meruelo. As they attempted to skirt around Cuba and reach Havana for another supply run, the, the pilot got the ships stuck in shoals for two weeks until a storm swelled and carried them into deeper waters. When they were just 40 miles from Havana, maybe even able to see the port on a clear day, a gusty wind hit and pushed them deeper into the Gulf of Mexico. On April 12th, they finally saw land again, the Florida Peninsula. They sent the foot soldiers and horses ashore to explore inland. As Cabeza de Vaca put it, quote, On Monday Thursday, we anchored on the same coast at the mouth of a bay, at the back of which we saw certain houses and habitations of Indians. The indigenous people they met gave them some food and then in the night abandoned their homes and slipped away in canoes. <laughs> Peaced out. Um it seems likely that they'd encountered Europeans before, and the experience was not pleasant. Ponce de Leon had explored much of the modern Florida Peninsula coastline in 1513, and scholars suggest that Spanish slaver vessels had raided the Bahamas and as far north as Florida from early in the 16th century. Perhaps the people that Narvaez's contingent encountered were fleeing lest they be taken and enslaved like their neighbors. Whatever the case, the next day when the Spaniards investigated the village, they found the house was empty and helped themselves to what the natives left behind. Narvaez struck a flag in the earth and claimed the land just north of the mouth of Tampa Bay for the Spanish king Charles I. Yes, Charles I. Cabeza de Vaca noted that they found a few gold trinkets, which of course interested the conquistadors greatly. When the natives finally returned, they were again non-confrontational and through muddled uh, gesturing seemed, according to Cabeza de Vaca, to be signaling that the Spaniards should, should leave, but did not threaten violence. Narvaez led a group exploring inland, and they traveled north for most of a day, spending the night in a bay, and then returned to where their, their ships were. Narvaez sent the brigadine in search of for the port that Miruelo assured them was just a few miles away. Um, it was actually 900 miles away, so no. Oh my and- god, for <laughs> sake, Miruelo. <laughs> <laughs> and the captain slash new governor of Florida ordered the brigantine to return to Cuba if they were unsuccessful and return with supplies and more men. The next time the landing party encountered the natives, the Spaniards asked them where the gold trinkets um, had come from. Through further signing and gesturing, the natives told them of a place called Appalachian, which is where they'd found a Spanish shipwreck with crates of linen, gold trinkets, and the bodies of some Castilian merchants. Narvaez then made a decision that was ultimately the hinging moment of disaster for the expedition. He called aside his officers, including Cabeza de Vaca, told them his intention, and asked for their opinions. He wanted to split the expedition and send the ships to follow the coast and get to Rio de Palmas, which, because he believed Miruelo, was supposed to be very close. <laughs> While the 300 or so foot soldiers and 80 horses would travel inland and find a more suitable spot to establish a new colony for the Spanish crown. Cabeza de Vaca objected to this plan, according to his own account, at least, um, strenuously. Narvaez offered to let Cabeza de Vaca go to the ships, which seemed the less dangerous option, but Cabeza de Vaca declined. He preferred that it be known he go into the dangerous wilds of La Florida, aware that they probably wouldn't survive, than to stay with the ships and have it be said that he did so out of fear. 
the landing party would never see those ships again. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. For the first three weeks of walking, they saw no one and found little to eat. They raided villages for food whenever they could, got into a couple of skirmishes and killed a few natives, but lost no men themselves, and also took some hostages who told them about a city that that had what they were looking for. Gold. Mostly, they encountered the Appalachian people, a native group that lived in the Floridian panhandle. Um, Some still live in Louisiana today. Though in some instances, they came into conflict with with groups of Appalachian in others, the natives helped the Spanish by serving as guides or sharing food. For the most part, though, the Europeans were on their own. Cabeza de Baca writes, quote, We had also suffered greatly from hunger, for although we found maize occasionally, most of the time we marched seven or eight leagues without any. So that's like mm, 21 to 28 miles or something like that. And many there were among us who, besides suffering great fatigue and hunger, had their backs covered with wounds from the weight of the armor and other things they had to carry as occasion required. But to find ourselves at last where we wished to be and where we had been assured so much food and gold would be had made us forget a great deal of our hardships and weariness. When one of their guides told them of a village called Aute nearby that had many riches, the governor turned his expedition in search of it. All along the journey to Aute, they were hunted by Appalachians who appeared, attacked, and then retreated back into the lagoons and forests. Many of Narvaez's men died or were wounded. Cabeza de Vaca described the warriors who attacked them as huge, with arrows that could pierce Spanish armor like it was nothing. It's interesting because I think we forget there are so many accounts of Europeans being utterly terrified by indigenous Americans. And we forget that because of, like, what ended up happening in the Mm -hmm. long run. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Finally, they made it to Aute, but found it deserted. The houses burned to the ground and none of the promised riches. Their only salvation was that there were corn, beans, and squash ready to be harvested. Notably, all along these few months of walking into the Florida panhandle, Cabeza de Vaca urged Narvaez to turn back to the coast to try to reconnect with the ships, but the governor declined. It wasn't until they found no gold in Aute that the governor decided to seek out the sea again. They picked their way slowly through the dense forest to the sea, but of course, when they got there, there were no ships awaiting them. Desperate to get off the inhospitable Florida panhandle, the crew built rafts. There were no shipwrights or even carpenters among them. According to Cabeza de Vaca, quote, This seemed impossible to all because we did not know how to build them, nor were there tools or iron or a forge or oakum or pitch or tackle. In short, not one of all the net things that are necessary, nor anyone who would know any way to apply ingenuity to building a ship. And above all, there was nothing to eat while they were being built, nor were there those that were able to work anyone who knew the craft. (laughs) This doesn't seem like a good plan, just saying. (laughs) Um, But... They were left with few choices, so they felled trees for rough-hewn lumber, made rope out of the tails and manes of the horses, and stitched their shirts into sails. They made water pouches out of horse skin and melted down all the iron they had, their horseshoes, saddle tack, personal effects, all of it, to make nails and tools. As they worked, they killed all their horses one by one, feeding the meat to the men who worked on the rafts. 
When they were out of horses to kill and the barges were seaworthy, they crammed onto them, 50 men to a raft, and set sail, hoping to make it to Rio de Palmas. They sailed for 30 days with very little food and almost no water. The horse skin water bags rotted. Some men resorted to drinking seawater and got very sick or just died. Occasionally, they stumbled on inhabited islands. The natives fled from their approach, and the Spaniards raided the empty villages for food and water. At the end of October, they met a group, probably Choctaws, who gave them food and water and promised to bring them more water. Two of the Christians went with the natives to help, and two natives stayed behind with the Spaniards. When the natives returned, they brought the water, but not the hostages. A skirmish ensued, but eventually the Europeans escaped, having to leave their two comrades behind. After another day of sailing, they found their way into the Mississippi River Basin, where the seawater was potable, and they anchored and drank deeply, resting for a couple of days before moving on. It was nearing the winter storm season, and they needed to reach their destination. Narvaez had the healthiest soldiers on his raft, and rowing their way along the coast, he quickly pulled away from the rest of the rafts. When Cabeza de Vaca asked the governor if they might tie their rafts together so as not to leave anyone behind, Narvaez replied, He answered to me that it was no longer time for one man to rule another, that each one should do whatever seemed best to him in order to save his own life, and that he intended so to do it. End quote. The governor left his expedition crew behind, and Cabeza de Vaca never saw him again. What a D-bag. Yeah, jerk. Another storm wrecked their rafts and left them on an island, probably Galveston Island, which they named the Island of Misfortune. Those who'd survived the sea journey were weak. When the natives of the island, possibly the Cuchindados or one of the others in the Cohuiltecan linguistic family, came to them and brought them food and water. After recovering for a few days with the help of the natives, the Spanish decided to try to retrieve their rafts and set sail again. The rafts were like buried in the sand in the shore, at the shoal. Um, they stripped down so that they could dig their raft out of the surf, um, and then they got on it got a little ways out, and almost immediately, all at sea, a big wave came and capsized it and drowned some men. Their clothes and all of their possessions had been on the boat, and they were swept out to sea, lost along with those men. Those who could swim made it back to the island, and the natives returned to the beach, surprised now to find the Europeans completely naked. Cabeza de Vaca explained through signs and gestures that they'd attempted to leave the island, but that the sea had taken their raft and drowned their three friends. The natives sat down and wept. Cabeza de Vaca wrote, quote, The Indians, on seeing the disaster in which we were with so much misfortune and misery, sat down among us, and with a great pain and pity they felt on seeing us in such fortune, they all began to weep forcefully and with such sincerity that it could be heard far away, end quote. The Cuchindados offered to bring the Europeans back to their homes to take care of them. Many of the Spaniards on the crew had been to New Spain and heard tales of human sacrifice and were convinced that such would be their fate if they went with them. But Cabeza de Vaca went with them, dismissing his compatriots' assumptions that all American Indians were the same. The Cuchindados helped care for the Europeans through the winter, even reunited Cabeza de Vaca's group with one of the other barges that had washed ashore at a different part of the island. The strongest Spaniards decided to try to take one of the rafts and continue on the journey, promising to get a proper ship and come back for those who were too weak to continue on. 
Those who sailed away ultimately died. Their raft came apart in the water, and they were shipwrecked on an island without food. At least five of them resorted to cannibalism. This dark. Uh, in total, there were 80 survivors and two rafts left on Galveston Island. The survivors wintered there with the Cuchandados. Uh, most of their illnesses, malnutrition, and wounds were too much. By February 1529, only 15 of the 80 lived. Those 15 were enslaved by several different groups of natives and separated. Cabeza de Vaca, who became very ill, was taken to the mainland by some of the natives there. Most of the other survivors eventually crossed from Galveston Island to the mainland, but they left two behind. Cabeza de Vaca was in no shape to travel, nor did he want to abandon the two still on the island, who could not cross because they couldn't swim. So 12 of the shipwrecked survivors headed west. After being left behind, Cabeza de Vaca was enslaved by a family of natives, possibly the Choruco, and forced to work digging up the edible roots that made up the local diet. He felt he was treated so badly that he resolved to escape his enslavers, which he did after a year, and then he became a merchant, traveling to various communities throughout the region, but always returning to his countrymen on Galveston Island. According to his account, he was at this for the better part of six years, but most scholars estimate that he was a merchant for four. While Cabeza de Vaca was working as a merchant in the southeast Texas region, most of his fellow countrymen and women were perishing from starvation, disease, native attacks, or drowning. As far as we know, there would ultimately be only three other survivors with whom Cabeza de Vaca would eventually reunite, Andres Dorantes, Alonso del Castillo, and Esteban. While Cabeza escaped his enslavers and worked as a free merchant, Dorantes, Castillo, and Esteban remained captives of the Iguasis Indians. Castillo and Dorantes were, like Cabeza, minor Spanish nobles. Esteban was an enslaved man from Morocco. While scholars debated for the better part of the 20th century about whether he was an Arab man from Morocco, most agree now that he was likely a black man. Esteban was one of an unknown number of enslaved black men on the Narvaez expedition, but is the only known survivor. Through the surviving records, both Nafragios and Francesco de Oviedo's Historia, Esteban is referred to as El Negro, or the black man, or as Estebanico, an, uh, a nickname that means Little Stephen, and was undoubtedly meant to mark Esteban as a slave, not a man worthy of the adult version of his name. Durantes was Esteban's enslaver, so Esteban was essentially his personal slave. Even when they were both enslaved? Mm-hmm. Isn't that bizarre? Yes. Um, despite Dennis Herrick's efforts to reconstruct Esteban's life, we still know very little about him other than what can be gleaned from the ways that Cabeza de Vaca, Francesco Oviedo, and other Spanish friars who traveled with Esteban in a second expedition into the American Southwest described him. Most historians agree that he was a Muslim who converted to Christianity. He was from Morocco and thus likely born into Islam, but throughout the text, Cabeza de Vaca lumps Esteban in with the Europeans when he calls their group Christians. An early 16th century law required that enslaved Africans brought to the Americas as personal slaves be Christian. Esteban was likely fluent in at least Arabic and Spanish before the Narvaez expedition, and possibly several other languages as well. An ear for languages may have helped him in learning half a dozen or more indigenous American languages, as well as the sign language they used to communicate between tribes. 
It seems likely that Esteban's difference from the North and South Americans and Europeans would have been significant to the indigenous peoples that the Christians encountered. Dennis Herrick argues that the Hopi, Zuni, and Rio Grande Pueblo Katsina spirit, known as Chacuaina, was created in memory of Esteban's arrival in southwestern North America. Though the conquistadors brought enslaved black men and women into South and Central America as early as 1501, few, if any, of the indigenous peoples of northern Mexico and modern-day New Mexico would have encountered an African person. While Cabeza de Vaca wrote that the natives seemed convinced of the Christians' healing gifts, which we'll discuss a little bit later, uh, because they came from the east or the sky slash ocean, it's just as possible that Esteban's uniqueness as this sort of dark-skinned man was also a powerful tool of influence. Yet, according to Cassander Smith, Cabeza de Vaca, quote, marginalized Esteban's participation in the healing rituals and the account more broadly. This shouldn't come as much of a surprise. Cabeza de Vaca wrote the account knowing that it would be read by the king. He would not have heaped an enslaved man with accolades or chalked his own survival up to a black Moroccan because it would have hindered his own ability to leverage his survival for a new post in the new world. Instead, he markets himself as the primary hero of his narrative, with his three sidekicks along the way. And the only other record of the expedition came from the formal report that Castillo, Durantes, and Cabeza de Vaca made to the governor of New Spain, which also would not have imbued Esteban with the credit that he was likely due in the matter of the Spaniards' survival. While Esteban, Castillo, and Dorantes were enslaved by the Mariamas and Iguesas, Indians in the vicinity of the southmost bend of the Nueces River, only a few days' walk from the Rio Grande, Cabeza de Vaca made his living as a merchant. He traded pearls, conch shells, snails, bison and deer hides, red ochre, and more. He learned several of the languages of the people within 100 miles of Galveston Island and got to witness much of the local flora and fauna of southeastern Texas. He continued to make frequent visits back to the island to visit the two stranded Spaniards who couldn't swim and thereby refused to leave. When one of the stranded men died, Cabeza de Vaca finally carried the other, Lope de Oviedo, across the inlet himself. Finally, they could go find other Christians and make their way to New Spain. They followed rumors of other Christians for weeks, encountering several hostile groups of natives who threatened them and harassed them. Oviedo eventually abandoned Cabeza de Vaca, going back to the tribe that he'd grown accustomed to. Shortly after Oviedo left, Cabeza de Vaca found Durantes, Castillo, and Esteban. The Mariamas and Iguasas Indians traveled seasonally to capitalize on forageable food, from pecans near Goliad, Texas, to the places where the prickly pear cactus grows in abundance, most likely a few miles south of the Nueces River bulge. According to Cabeza de Vaca, the three men were treated badly by their enslavers and wanted to escape. It took six months of planning and waiting until the natives were feasting on prickly pear fruit and not paying attention to the captives before the four could escape. It was then that the last leg of Cabeza de Vaca's journey began, sometime in late 1534, in which he, Durantes, Castillo, and Esteban traveled through southwest Texas and northern Mexico in search of a way to New Spain. On the road, the Spaniards learned several different indigenous languages and relied on Esteban as a broker between the Spaniards and the indigenous peoples they encountered. 
Though Cabeza de Vaca only occasionally refers specifically to Essay's role in his account, scholars have determined that the enslaved Moroccan man was essential to the survival of Cabeza Durantes in Castillo. In at least one telling moment, Cabeza de Vaca writes of their Christian's introduction to the Avavares. He said, quote, Pursuing our course that day with great fear that the Indians would follow us, we saw some spires of smoke. And going toward them, after Vespers, we arrived there, where we saw an Indian who, as he saw that we were coming toward him, fled without wanting to wait for us. We sent the black man after him. Where the indigenous peoples were afraid of the white men, and often had good reason to be, based on the activities of Cortez's army and other conquistadors who raped and pillaged their way across Mexico, it seems that the darker-skinned Esteban was able to better communicate and establish a better rapport with the locals. Building on their successes during their first year with the Cuchendados on their path across northern Mexico slash southwestern Texas, um, the four men became famous healers among the Avavares. The natives believed that the Europeans had healing gifts and insisted that they lay hands on sick men and women. According to Cabeza, quote, they tried to make us be physicians without examining us or asking us for our titles because they cure illnesses by blowing on the sick person and with that breath of air and their hands they expel the disease from him. And they demanded that we do the same and make ourselves useful. We laughed about this, saying that it was a mockery and that we did not know how to cure. And because of this, they took away our food until we did as they told us. In short, we found ourselves in such need that we had to do it, without fearing that anyone would bring us grief for it, end quote. Though the Europeans resisted at first, the response from the natives they laid their hands on was such that, in time, Cabeza de Vaca and others came to believe in their own healing power. As Cabeza de Vaca and the other survivors were making their way across northern Mexico, their reputation as powerful healers became a kind of social currency that helped them gain safe passage. Their healing ritual involved touching the afflicted, blowing on them as other native healers did, and then saying a Christian prayer and making the sign of the cross. Cabeza de Vaca centered his role as a superior spiritual healer in his narrative. In one instance, he touched and prayed over, you know, reportedly, touched and prayed over the body of a man who appeared dead. The next day, that man walked around the camp claiming to be completely healed, and the natives were both awed and fearful of the Christian's power. They established their healing authority while wintering with the Avavaris people, quote, and each one of the sick people offered their bows and arrows, and he accepted them, and at sunset he made the sign of the cross over them and entrusted them to God our Lord, and we all prayed in the best way we could um, that we might bring them health, since he saw that there was no means by which to make these people help us so that we could leave so miserable a life. And he did it so mercifully that come in the morning, they all awoke so fit and healthy that they went away as vigorously as if they had never had any malady whatsoever. This caused very great wonders among them, end quote. For eight months, they lived with the Avavares, and many came to visit them and seek their healing power. Eventually, word spread, and when they set out again on their search for New Spain, tales of their healing prowess preceded them. Though Cabeza de Vaca represents himself in his narrative of someone who resisted stereotypes and assumptions about indigenous Americans from the very beginning, he undergoes a powerful spiritual transformation from the time he was abandoned at Galveston Island to the end of his journey. Like a normal Catholic Spaniard, he regularly gives thanks to God for surviving this and that tragedy. 
when God delivered him and the majority of his men from the sea during storms or deigned to allow him to recover from injury and illness or allowed him to only be wounded in the face by a native arrow and not pierced like so many of Narvaez's party, his genuflection seems trivial, you know, a reflex. But during his journey across northern Mexico and southern Texas with Castillo, Durantes, and Esteban, the Holy Spirit moves in him in moves him in, in new ways. Reflecting on that first major healing with the Avavares people, he wrote that quote, It moved us to give many thanks to our Lord and to experience more fully his mercy, and to maintain firm hope that he would deliver us and take us where we could serve him. And for myself, I can say that I always had complete faith in his mercy, that he would deliver me from that captivity. And so I always said to my companions, end quote. Whatever humor and skepticism that he and his countrymen felt about touch healing when they f- were first forced to do it on Galveston Island, by the time they reached Culiacan uh, in, in modern Mexico, Cabeza de Vaca reports on the natives healed by his touch as if it's a fact, a God-ordained fact. Rather than claiming land for the crown, their journey seemed to shift in tone. From Goliad to Mexico City, they sought to enlighten the indigenous peoples of the power of the Christian God. For all these years, the four Christians walked naked through the Americas. This vulnerability, too, contributed to Cabeza de Vaca's spiritual transformation. Quote, and with the sun and wind, there appeared on our chest and back some very great ulcerations, which caused us great distress on account of the large loads we carried, which were very heavy and caused the ropes to cut into the flesh of our arms. And the land is so rugged and impassable that many times when we gathered firewood in the dense thickets, when we finished taking it out, we were bleeding in many places from the thorns and brambles that we encountered. For wherever they ensnared us, they broke our skin. Sometimes it happened to me that after shedding much blood and gathering wood, I could not haul it out, either on my back or by dragging it. I did not have, when I saw myself in these difficulties, any other remedy or consolation but to think about the passion of our Redeemer Jesus Christ and the blood he shed for me, and to consider how much greater had been the torment that he suffered from the thorns than that which I had to endure at that time. Um, so essentially in that, you know, between the, the use of the thorns images and the carrying a great burden on their backs, right, this is a very... Uh, Christian symbological uh, imagery that that Cabeza de Vaca imbues in this part of the narrative where it's about him and his comrades traveling across um, across you know northern Mexico as, as in much the way that that Christ would have right right their sufferings reminded them of the sufferings of Christ kind mm-hmm. of um For eight months, they stayed with the Avavares people. When they finally left the Avavares, who were a tribe that lived on the mainland away from the coastline, Cabeza de Vaca convinced his companions to travel inland rather than along the coastline because he believed that the coastal natives to be more hostile. All agreed because their experiences with coastal Indians had been enslavement and deprivation, because most of the coastal natives were nomadic and forced to travel from food source to food source seasonally with lots of hungry times in between. With few exceptions, the indigenous peoples that they met while journeying across northern Mexico and southern Texas were good to the Christians. They fed them, celebrated them with long nights of parties and the dances known as arietos, and brought sick people and children to be touched by the famous healers. After they crossed the Guadalquivir River, the people they stayed with started escorting the four. 
When the escorting group reached the next village, the escorts would take all the valuables of the people with whom they left the Christians. At first, this worried Cabeza de Vaca and his companions because they worried that if their arrival in a new village came with looting, then word would travel that they would not be welcome. But they were reassured by the villagers who just received them. Quote, the same Indians who lost their households on seeing our sadness consoled us by saying that we should not be grieved by that because they were so content to have seen us that they considered that their possessions had been well employed and that farther ahead they would be compensated by others who were very rich, end quote. So from village to village, the cycle played out and their arrival and departure were celebrated. They traveled across at least seven rivers and through the town uh, of Corazones. They searched for clues that might lead them to the Spanish outpost in western Mexico, Culiacan. Once they noticed a horseshoe nail in a native's necklace and asked about it. The man said he got it from, quote, men with beards like yours had come from the east to that river. They had horses, lances, and swords. Upon learning this, Cabeza de Vaca and his companions, quote, gave God our Lord many thanks for what we had heard, for we were despairing to ever hear of Christians again. In this narrative, Cabeza de Vaca took the time to record details of the landscape, the flora, and the fauna the customs, and the language groups of the indigenous peoples. His are the first written records of American bison, of the prickly pear cactus fruit on which the coastal peoples feasted when they were in season, on the pecan trees native to the south and southwestern coastal region of the United States, and more. But as they got closer to territory conquered by the Spanish, the landscape changed. Villages were burned, farmland had been destroyed, the natives hid their blankets and goods to protect them from Spanish raiders. Those people were afraid of Cabeza de Vaca, Castillo, and Durantes, for, despite their nudity and reputation as healers, they were still Spanish. Though he doesn't say so explicitly, after all, his narrative was intended for a royal audience, and it probably would not have served him to judge the Spanish army too harshly, Cabeza de Vaca seems to see the damage the Spanish left in their wake and regret them. After our five years living with and getting to know the indigenous peoples of northern Mexico and southern Texas, Cabeza knew that there were more effective ways to work with the locals. He found greater success when he established effective ways to communicate, provided services like healing for goods and protection, and avoided making assumptions about the southwestern tribes based on experience with the Central American nations. In the winter of 1536, the four were finally reunited with other Spaniards and made it to the Spanish outposts in Culiacan, and then eventually on to Mexico City. In the spring of 1537, Cabeza de Vaca sailed for Spain, but returned to South America in 1540 with an assignment from the king to explore and govern the Rio de la Plata in South America, in Argentina, Paraguay, and Uruguay. As before, the king hoped that Cabeza de Vaca would find silver and gold mines, but he was unsuccessful. While in Paraguay, Cabeza de Vaca was sympathetic to natives and treated them well. He began advocating for indigenous rights and protections, which angered some of the other Spanish in the area who wanted to continue to enslave natives and take their territories. The other Spanish governors banded together to charge Cabeza de Vaca, ironically, with mistreatment of natives, and he was sent back to Spain in chains in 1544. He never returned to the Americas and died in Spain in 1558. Cabeza de Vaca's narrative is not one of the successful domination of the indigenous people of southwestern North America. It's barely even a record of a successful evangelical mission, but it didn't need to be a successful conquest to provide useful results. 
Scholars have noted how important his record of the war tactics of the indigenous groups he encountered would be to future conquistadors. Knowing how the natives used canoes, lagoons, forests, night raids, and powerful archers would have been valuable information to those seeking to defeat those groups. Even if Cabeza de Vaca may have meant these descriptions to be a warning of the futility of engaging these people in war, it may well have accomplished the opposite. For future scholars of the early Americas, Cabeza de Vaca gave us, if poorly transliterated, names of the southwestern tribes. The Caoques from Galveston Island, the Taruco in the mainland nearest Galveston, west from Galveston, also on the coast, uh, the Dogens, and yet further, the Cavenes. Inland from the Cavenes were the Mariames, for whom Doriantes worked for a while. To their west resided the Iguazis, and near to the coast were the Guicones. The Elva Vares, who'd been so good to the Christians that they'd stayed with them for eight months, lived inland from the coast in sedentary agricultural villages. His descriptions of indigenous customs and society, while colored by his Christian-slash-Spanish standards, are an important early ethnographic account of the southwestern American peoples. He discussed the common practice of breastfeeding children until they were 12 to ensure that they made it through the hungry times, and the regularity of same-sex desiring men who lived in couplings without, to Cabeza de Vaca's shock, being put to death for sodomy, which is, you know, what, what, this would have happened in Spain. He described the frequency of social gatherings and celebrations, marked with dancing, which he found surprising considering how often those same people went hungry in between harvests or the gathering of ripe seasonal foodstuffs. We have few written records or preserved first-hand accounts from the indigenous peoples of the Americas. Uh, one exception is the Tierra de Tepechpan, which recorded the history of the city of Tepechpan from 1298 through 1596 in pictographs, but which, as Laurie Deal notes, are shaped by their own grandiose biases. So, though certainly problematic, the works of conquistadors like Bernardino de Sahagún, Bernadías del Casillo, and Álvaro Núñez Cabeza de Vaca are essential to our current understanding of early American history. When they reached New Spain, Dorantes, Castillo, and Cabeza de Vaca made a formal report to the governor in 1537 before going their separate ways. The original report to the governor was lost long ago, but a 16th-century Spanish historian, Gonzalo Fernandez de Oviedo y Valdez, drew heavily from it to write his comprehensive Historia General de las Indias, published in several dozen volumes between 1526 and 1553. The Historio and Naufragio are two of the earliest written works cataloging the people's flora, fauna, topography, and climate of southwestern North America. Both are colored by the biases of their authors, Christian, European imperialists, and those biases are evident in the text, even if they are harder to identify than they would in, say, accounts of Pizarro or Cortez's conquests. It is an interesting conquistador narrative, a counterpoint to the Pizarros and Corteses of Spanish imperialism, but still written from the perspective of a man who considered himself, in his religion, customs, and way of life, superior to that of the Americans he encountered. He marginalized Esteban, a black man, even though, as Dennis Herrick suggests, Esteban was essential to the Spaniards' survival. We can also see his biases in what Cabeza de Vaca took notice of and what he didn't. In that way, Cabeza de Vaca's writing is important because of what it contributes to our knowledge in this period of the history of the Americas, but also because it challenges us to read the silences in imperialist records.
right, that's it. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Uh, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at dig underscore history. If you're looking to bedazzle yourself in some epic dig swag, visit our Tee Public store. Find the link to our swag store as well as transcripts and bibliographies for all of our episodes at digpodcast.org. Bye. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Heaps. Important, important difference. <laughs> I thought you were using it in, like he mimicked. Mimic, something. yeah, no. Um, in the Quilatan. Coquiltacan. yeah. Those are the stories of machismo. Wait, just machismo. <laughs> They're just stories of machismo. Yeah. Um, from pecans near Goliad. Goliad? Is it Goliad? I would from... say Goliad. Wouldn't you say Goliad? No. <laughs> That's not. But I'll say Goliad. One of Alvar's ancestors helped the king win a battle by making a special mountain pass with a cow's skull. Thus, Mark, no, mar- marking it, not making it. <laughs> made it. He made it with a cow's skull. Charles V, right? Charles V of the Holy Roman, Roman Emperor, Empire. Charles, Charles I of Spain. Spain. Yeah. Okay. I think you spelled a report wrong. I think I did too. Spelled a report. Nafragio. Should I should look that up. Nafragios. Yes. All along the journey to Aute, they were haunted by Appalachies, or ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> haunted by Appalachian ghosts. Okay. Um, I'm Avril Earls. And I'm Marissa Gardner Masaryk. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm Marissa. Wait. What is your name? What is? Wait, what is my name? Hang on. Where's my headphones? And I'm Marissa Rhodes. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig.